So um, God has rescued Jonah from the sea. Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Thanks, Terry. Do keep that open, and we're going to pray for God's help to understand it before we begin. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word to us. Thank you that as we listen to that reading, we hear and see something of you in action in this world. And Lord, thank you for the way that you used this weak yet reluctant prophet to bring a message that changed a whole city. Lord, please, would you be at work in us through our weakness as well, as we long to see lives in this place changed by Christ. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Don't know when the last time was you stopped your... spiritual state of the continent in which we live, Europe. Some of the latest statistics coming out of France tell us that there are now more more full-time occult practitioners than there are Christian workers. It's pretty frightening, isn't it? More people practicing the occult for a living than preaching the gospel for a living. And you see, France isn't an isolated case. We live in an ever-increasingly secular Europe. And you see, maybe with that backdrop, it's not surprising that the word revival there on the screen is a word that has all but slipped out of our church dictionaries today. 
But you see, if you live back in the 18th century under the preaching of John Wesley and George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, a period of history known as the Great Awakening, because so many people en masse came to trust Jesus, then the word revival would have been commonplace. And you see, when we come to Jonah chapter 3, that's exactly what we see. We see revival, an event unparalleled in Bible history. Maybe the closest we get is actually Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes at Pentecost and Peter preaches and 3,000 are added to the number that day. But here in chapter 3, through the preaching of Jonah, a city of 120,000 are brought to their knees in repentance. That must have been quite an incredible scene, wasn't it? To witness. And you see, when we think about miracles and we come to the book of Jonah, so often we'll jump straight to Jonah chapter 2, won't we? And the episode of the great fish that we looked at last week. And of course, that was a wonderful and miraculous provision of God. But without doubt, a pagan city of God-haters. They hated God. Believing the word of the Lord and turning to him, without doubt, that is a far greater miracle. You see, there is no greater miracle than what God does in the human heart when he turns a soul away from a life lived without God back to a life of knowing the Lord. When he brings a soul from death to life, someone who is currently in opposition to God to a living, loving relationship with the Lord. You see, we've been singing it already this morning, right? Our God is mighty to save. Saviour, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. We sing it on a Sunday, right? We've done it already. But do we believe it on a Monday when we move back into an ever-increasingly secular world because you see the answer is we should because it is the same God we worship today that we see in action in Jonah chapter 3 and his saving power is undiminished you see maybe in our context at this particular moment in history this little moment of time maybe we're not seeing whole villages and towns and cities turn to Christ But step back for a moment and take a snapshot of the globe of what our God is doing across the face of this earth. Then do you know what? Thousands of people are becoming Christians every day across the globe. Revival is happening, but it's just in a scattered way that maybe we're not seeing at our particular point in history at this time in this place. Our God... Jonah 3 screams out, is mighty to save. And so as we come to it this morning, this should be a wonderful encouragement to us all to know what our God is capable of doing. Before we come to some of the detail, let's remind ourselves of the big picture. We should be getting quite familiar with this by now, third week in. Jonah chapter 1, we see a man on the run. God says, go. And Jonah says, no. Instead, he runs from the word of the Lord. Here in Jonah chapter 3, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Go. This time, Jonah says yes. And he does go. Obediently, he goes to Nineveh. Still weak, 
as we shall see, but now willing to speak. And last week we looked at Jonah chapter 2, the great transformation of grace, God's saving work in Jonah's life that turned around this reluctant prophet from being a man on the run to being a man on a mission. That's the big picture. Now we come to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah's on the move. He's on his way to Nineveh. What happens when he gets there? And so I think there's two points. So I'm going to bring two points to you or two lessons for us to learn this morning. And here's the first lesson. God uses weak people to do remarkable things. Here's a little quiz question for you. Three names on the screen there. Francis Jeffers, Steve Guppy, David Nugent. What have those three men got in common? Sorry if you're not a footballer here in the room. These are all footballers. The, the illustration will stand even if you know nothing about football. Anyone know what those three guys have got in common? It's not they've scored from a corner. Anybody else? These three guys have only got one cap for England, for their national side. I.e., they played once, weren't quite good enough, and never got another chance. See, that's sport, right? Sport's pretty brutal. Business is the same. Life, in fact, is the same. If you don't make the grade, if you're not quite good enough, if you don't cut it, you just get moved to the sidelines and someone else will come in to do your job. Someone else will be brought in. But you see, in God's economy, it couldn't be more different, right? Have a look down at verse 1 of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Here is a man on the run who has resisted God again and again, but the word of the Lord keeps coming. God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances, etc. He doesn't just discard people. If they fail, if they mess up, He doesn't just slide them to one side and bring somebody else in. God, in his grace, determines to use weak people. He is a patient God who uses failures like Jonah. And you know what? That should be a wonderful encouragement, shouldn't it, to us this morning? Do you know what? If you're sat there, and I imagine some people are, and you're thinking, do you know what? I look at Jonah and I just see me. I see things of me, I see weakness, I see a guy who messes up again and again, I see a guy who ignores God, who gets things wrong. And sometimes we come to this place of thinking, how can God ever use somebody like me to advance his kingdom? If that's you this morning, join the club. Because guess what, I'm in it. And you know, every single person in this room, is in it as well. Yet however weak, however reluctant, however vulnerable you might feel this morning, God in his grace determines to use you. And you know what? It's always been God's way, right? Search the scriptures. You look at any character in the Bible, any servant of God, and it will not take you long to find failures and weaknesses. Yet God still uses them to do remarkable things. 
Friends, this morning, be encouraged, yeah? Be encouraged with what God can do with one weak vessel like Jonah, who puts himself forward for service. This was one man. And we've seen him in his weakness already. But look what happened when he went in all his weakness, but in the power of God. Look what happens to this great city of Nineveh. So you see, our first lesson is there on the screen. God uses weak people to do remarkable things in his world. But there is a part B to this first point. Because you see, the reason why God can do such good, big, remarkable things with weak people, like you and me, is because the power does not lie in us. The power isn't in the person or the messenger. The power is in the message that God has given us, the life that he's given us to live and to share with this world. Which brings us to point B. God uses weak people to share his powerful message. Have a look at verse 2. The word of the Lord comes, and this is what it says. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. This is a God-given message. It is a divine message. This isn't something that Jonah dreamt up that he thought could do some good stuff. This is a message from the Lord. It is a word from God himself that people need to hear. It is a true message. And therefore, it is a powerful message. And Jonah was simply God's mouthpiece that had the privilege of passing on this God-given message to the people of Nineveh. And verse 4, look, we get a summary of that message. Verse 3, Jonah obeys and he goes. Verse 4, he walks a day's journey into the city proclaiming. And here is his message. It's on the screen. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. No doubt a summary of a longer message that Jonah gave. I don't get this picture of Jonah with a megaphone shouting out those same eight words, wearing people down to repentance. It is a summary. These eight words are a summary of a longer message that Jonah gave. But even in those eight words there on the screen, it captures the heart of the message that God wanted to give to the city of Nineveh. Have a look at those words. What do you make of them? Just eight words. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's essentially a message, is it not, of delayed judgment. Nineveh will be overthrown. Judgment is coming. But implicitly built into the message is a time of repentance, 40 more days, and then Nineveh will be overthrown. You see, as you look at that message, it's the gospel, isn't it? Isn't that the gospel in embryonic form that is filled out in the New Testament? That we believe in a God who will return. The Lord Jesus Christ will come back to judge the living and the dead. There is a day of reckoning when it won't be Nineveh, but the world and all its powers that will be overthrown. But God, in his tremendous goodness and patience, is holding back. He is holding back that day of judgment, giving people an opportunity to repent. 
to acknowledge their sin and their ways and their waywardness and to turn away from that sin and to turn back to the living God and to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. It's the gospel that Jonah preached in embryonic form. And you see the Apostle Peter says the same thing in the third chapter of his second letter. Look at it on the screen there. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God has promised a day when he will come to right all the wrongs of this world. The reason he's not come back yet isn't slowness, it's patience. God in his wonderful patience is holding back that day, giving people an opportunity to repent and to come back to the living God. You see, it's a message that we all need to hear, right? And it's a message that we all need to act upon. If you're sat here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow or next week. Today. Please don't presume upon the grace of God. Turn to Christ today and find forgiveness. And if you are a Christian here this morning, rejoicing in the salvation that has come to you, then we've looked at already. Think of the spiritual state of our continent. There are thousands upon millions of people who need that gospel. Will we be Jonah to others? In all our weakness, in all our frailties, will we go in God's grace and in God's power and do something to bring something of this gospel message to the people of this world? Because it isn't just a message for Jonah 2,800 years ago. This is a message that the world needs today. And you see the result in verse 5? When Jonah goes and proclaims this message and God works, the Ninevites believed God. Notice they didn't believe Jonah. They believed God because they knew this was a message from the Lord. Faith is awakened. The people trust in that message. I think if you're trying to summarize those first two points on the screen that we talked about, that God uses weak people to do remarkable things and to share his powerful message, then there's probably no better summary than 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. The Apostle Paul, look at what he says. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God not from us. Like Jonah, like the Corinthians, we're jars of clay, the Bible says. Weak, frail, fragile, normal, broken sometimes. But yet, as jars of clay, within us as believers, we hold the greatest treasure of all, the gospel the life-changing power of the gospel of what God has done in our life through Jesus. And it is our joy as weak jars of clay to carry that life-changing gospel into this world. Why does God do it like that? Why me? Why you? Well, have a look at the second part. 
to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. To show that it's God's glory and God's greatness and his work in people's lives. You see, when it comes to sharing the gospel, the privilege is ours. And what a privilege it is to have access to the truth that will change people's lives and eternities. The privilege is ours. Yet the power is God's. And that's wonderfully liberating, isn't it? Because if the power was mine, then woe to this world because of my weakness. No, it's my privilege. And it's your privilege. But the power to see lives changed is God's. And the power is in his message, as we see here in Jonah chapter 3. God uses weak people, number one. And then number two, our second lesson this morning, God saves repentant people. Have a look at verse 10, last verse, the climax of chapter 3. We'll come back and fill in, but have a look at what happens at the end. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. When people repent, God will relent. That's verse 10. When people repent, God will relent. And interestingly, the people of Nineveh are held up as this model of repentance in the New Testament. Have a look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus himself refers back to the people of Nineveh as a model of how to respond to the message of God. This is what he says. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. This is a pretty sharp rebuke from Jesus to the Pharisees. Do you see what he says? That pagan city that knew so little about God, so wicked, so outwardly wayward. When Jonah preached, they believed and they repented. And he says, now something or indeed someone greater than Jonah is here. Jesus. God himself has stepped onto the stage of human history, but he says, people are refusing to believe and repent. And because of that, their day of condemnation will come. See, if the Ninevites are a model of repentance, as Jesus says they are, then we must learn from them, right? Because that's why Jesus refers back to it. So what do we learn about the Ninevites and how they responded to the message of the Lord? Two quick things. Here's the first thing. Here's the first mark of genuine repentance. It's sorrow at sin. Have a look at verse 5. The Ninevites believed God as we've seen. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning, verse 6, reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Verse 8, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Do you see that word sackcloth three times? It comes up in those few verses. You see, sackcloth was a sign of mourning. 
It was a sign of sadness and of sorrow. When somebody died, people who knew them would have put on sackcloth. It was a sign of being humbled and of sorrow and sadness at the parting of somebody. But you see here in Jonah chapter 3, they're not mourning the loss of a loved one. They're mourning their own sin. They are saddened and sorrowful over their sin. They've begun to appreciate the depravity of their own hearts. Even the king of Nineveh, one of the leading cities in this superpower that is Assyria, the king himself is humbled by the king of kings, verse 6. He gets up from his throne, he takes off his royal robes, and he sits down in the dust in sackcloth humbled by the king of kings and by the message that came. And so the decree goes out in verse 7, and within hours this whole city has turned from its sin and has turned to the living God. I wonder this morning, how do you feel about your sin? Does it sadden you, your sin? Does it grieve you? Does it uh, awaken within you a godly hatred of all that is wrong? Does your heart want to turn to what is right and true and proper and good? You say, I don't know those, those times when you maybe see something, often happens for me on the news, and you see the aftermath of some horrendous wicked event, and you see maybe the bodies or something still scattered on the ground, and something in you wants to turn away from the screen because you just see the consequences of wickedness and something in it, it just disgusts you. It's, it's wrong. It's wrong. And you want to turn away from it. That's how we should feel about our sin. If we fully appreciate sin and its consequences, its offense to our loving God and the pain it causes the people of this world, we should want to turn from it. But if it doesn't fill our hearts with sorrow and sadness, we will continue to wallow in it rather than turn from it. Repentance begins in the human heart and a right appreciation of sin before the greatness of God. And here's the second thing. Genuine repentance is seen in action. Verse 8 to 10. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Repentance is visible. Yes, it begins in the heart with an appreciation of who we are and who God is, but very quickly it becomes visible in our outward behaviors. The Lord sees how these people turned. A visible turning away from sin. When people repent, God will relent. And you see, of course, repentance isn't just a one-off thing, right? It's not just something that happens at that moment of conversion when we recognize sin for the first time properly and we turn and we say, God, please forgive me. That is repentance. But repentance is called to be a way of life. 
That each and every day we take time to appreciate who we are and how we are living. And by the grace of God, we turn to a wonderful Savior and we say sorry to the one who can forgive us and help us live in the way that he longs us to live in. It's what the New Testament would call repentance and faith, isn't it? Repentance to turn from sin and faith to trust in Jesus Christ. Let me give you just one moment very quickly now to ask yourself the question in your own hearts from what we've looked at as we thought about God using this weak, reluctant prophet to do remarkable things. And as we think about the call to repent, to acknowledge sin and to turn from it to a living God, what is the challenge for you? I want to give you 30 seconds just before I wrap up. What is the challenge for you this morning? What is God saying to you from his word. Take 30 seconds. As we draw things to a close, be encouraged. (laughs) Be encouraged that our God is mighty to save. Recognize what happened in Nineveh and know that we worship the same God today who is powerful and gracious and able to change lives and be encouraged if you're anything like me that God would not only save us in his goodness but would choose to use us to be a part of his great kingdom work in taking his powerful life-changing message to this world jars of clay but with a wonderful treasure to walk into this world with and you know what if we do in all our weakness go then who knows, even in the context of pretty secular Europe, maybe revival itself isn't too far round the corner when jars of clay decide to go by the grace of God into his world. We're going to sing again. Gary's going to come up. We're going to sing joy in all the glorious names as we celebrate God's goodness, celebrating the fact that he uses people like us, celebrating his grace and his saving work in our lives. This is our final hymn. Why don't we stand together and celebrate God's goodness to us?